Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. This week, like every other week, we'll be talking about Pearl Jam's magna opus, their only song that matters, the song Once. You know, you'd think after listening to this song for six years straight, I'd get tired of it, but I think I love it more, and I can't wait to give it another listen tonight. I know. Everyone loves Jeremy, Corduroy, Black, a bunch of other songs of Pearl Jam's that are crap. No one gives Once the love it deserves. No one but us. Once every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who've been friends since high school. Join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years. One album at a time. Thomas, good evening. Good evening. It's uh, almost morning here. Well, sucks for you. I know, we're getting a late start. It does. But you know what doesn't suck for me? What's that? The album we're going to talk about. I am way excited. I'm glad you're excited. How's your week been? Anything exciting happening over the last uh, last couple weeks? No. I resisted the urge to go see Coheed and Cambria again because they came through once I was back in Denver. Why did you resist that urge? You just saw them recently, didn't you? Yeah, I had seen them the week before in Houston, but I didn't have anyone to go with. It was one of those I just wasn't feeling in the mood to... Fly solo? Yeah. There's plenty of times I have, and I'm fine with it, but I just wasn't feeling it that night. You should have called up Claudio to see if he wanted to hang out with you while you were there. He would have been a little busy. I resisted the urge to go see Dashboard. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize you had the urge to go see Dashboard. Uh you know, I haven't been to a concert in a long time, so it would have been fun. But I didn't, I'm not wanting to go. He's opening now. I guess Chris Carrabba is now an opener. So For who? Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness. Okay. I don't know who that is either. I saw Carrabba playing on the first tour I ever went on with Charles. We had a night off in Austin during South by Southwest and went to the Revival Tour Showcase. Okay. So it was Matt Pryor, Chris Caraba, Frank Turner, Austin Lucas, Chuck Reagan. It was a pretty good showcase, but Caraba had just started a, a new project that was called like Three Forks or something like that. Yeah, that was his his folksy attempt. So this was back in what, like 2015? I think 14. And he spent half the set playing dashboard songs and I got a beer thrown on me from one girl who was trying to throw it onto another girl. And then they started fighting across me. So I picked them both up one in each arm and threw them apart. <laughs> I they were going to say you, you got involved in the fight. I was somehow in the middle of the fight, but yeah, I got all of the beer thrown onto me and slapped a few times and I was like, you know what? I'm not having this. This is stupid. But it was also my introduction to Frank Turner, who was amazing, and he played a couple Get Up Kid songs with Matt Pryor, oh, nice. which was fun. The whole point of the Revival Tour is that it was all these people who have their own projects, and you have one person who has like their dedicated set time, but anyone's welcome to grab a guitar or harmonica, or they just have this big box of instruments on the side of the stage. You grab like a mandolin or other things and just walk out and just accompany whoever was playing. That's awesome. And so sometimes people would be playing solo and sometimes there'd you know, be a duet or you'd get a whole bunch of people up there playing for a couple of songs and then walking off. And during Pryor's set, Frank Turner came on and they had met the first time earlier that day. But Frank was a big Get Up Kids fan and he was accompanying Matt on a few songs. And at a couple different times, he had to give Matt prompts as to what either lyrics were or how to play the song. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and, and at a point, Frank's like, these are your songs. Why are you asking me how they go? Oh, that's funny, man. That was a good show. And that would have been like three nights after the first time you met Chuck. Oh, cool. Yeah, because we hit Tulsa on the way down to that. When y'all stayed at that fancy hotel? Yep. Cool. Way off topic, because this has absolutely nothing to do with the band live. I guess we could say it was connected because you did talk about seeing these, these bands live. Ooh. Well played, huh? That's a bad enough segue. It fits. We are talking about the band formed in 1984 called Live, Not Live. But before jumping in, in regular fashion of what we've done on prior episodes, is there anything that you want to add about uh, Nirvana's MTV Unplugged? 
the recent Hard Times article, Oh, You're a Nirvana Fan, Name Three Steps on Noble Siddhartha's Fourfold Path to Enlightenment. Now, I am a Nirvana fan, but I do not know any of those steps. But you know who probably does know all of the steps? Ed Kowalczak. Ed Kowalczak. Kowalczak. I just, right before this, I went and listened to an interview so that I would not butcher his name, and I still did it. Well done. Ed Kowalczak. Yes, Ed Kowalczak. He could probably name all of the steps on multiple paths to enlightenment. He probably could. He is he is a Buddhist. He was. Maybe he is again. At a point in the... Whenever whenever he left live shortly thereafter, he actually went back to Christianity. Uh, his album that he did alive made the Billboard's Christian albums, right? Yeah. So who knows what he is now because he's also back in the band live and... He just recently fired the original live guitarist who had been in the band the whole time. So, Oh, why? I have no idea. I haven't kept up with any of the drama. And I haven't researched any of the drama because all of the drama comes after Secret Samadhi, which is the album we are talking about. This was their third album, right? It was their third album as live. As live. Yes. They had put out a prior album under the name of Public Affection. Yes. There we go. Before we get too far into this one, jump back. There is one other connection that Live has to Nirvana, a legitimate connection to the band Nirvana. Do you know what that is? I am anxious to hear what that is. Please enlighten us. (laughs) They were contemporary bands, but they never really played together. And Ed says that he didn't get to see them until the In Utero tour. But prior to all of that, when they were both young, before they were big names and selling millions of records. They were both on tour and happened to have overlapping stops in San Francisco, and they both happened to be staying at the same crappy budget motel at the same time. And it happened to be the same time that Live's very first music video for their song Operation Spirit got its first airing on MTV. So both bands went down to the office of the motel, which was the only place that had a working television with cable, and they watched the music video together. Rad. Yeah. And then spent the whole rest of the day telling each other that the other would be a huge success. And they were both right. They were. Good for them. When they're going in to record Secret Samadhi, they are one of the biggest bands in the world. But before they were one of the biggest bands in the world, there were just three awkward kids who met in junior high and decided to start a band for a battle of the bands. Another battle of the band story. That seems to be a theme that we have going. So were they uh, successful like Muse or were they losers like Toad? Uh, They were not winners. They lost. Womp womp. (laughs) That could be attributed for the fact that they didn't have a charismatic leading man at the time. No, they added Ed after this. And then Ed is who gave them the charisma. And that's when they jumped in and did their first album, right? That is correct. They added Ed and spent the rest of their public school years playing music together. Yep. They had a handful of different names during that time. What was your favorite of the names? The most quintessentially 90s, 80s, 90s band name is probably Club Fungus. I would say that or Paisley Blues. Oh, that's terrible. But I did like, I think my favorite would be Action Front. They also played under the name of First Aid, but that, I don't think that really fits them. That does them. not fit them. But all of these band changes, they finally, I don't know if it was by choice or just where the band was when it happened, but they they broke out as live, right? I think they were just trying different things throughout junior high and high school, and the different band names probably reflected different stages. Yeah, different stages of that, of figuring out who they were. And like you said, you liked Public Affection, and, and they did as well. And after graduation, they released an album as Public Affection. It's called The Death of a Dictionary. And while it didn't shake up the musical world, it did solidify within the boys the idea that they could be a band and the band could be an actual thing. And so they had this newfound determination that really kind of worried their parents, but all the guys deferred college for a year and that is when they changed their name to live Mm -hmm. and so they doubled down their efforts and they put out their stellar debut mental jewelry which is criminally overlooked it really is i think most people when they think of live's big hit they go to throwing copper but mental jewelry is it's a little early for our podcast but it is an amazing album we may do it as a bonus episode or something mm-hmm. certainly it's it's one where i think most people jumped on the throwing copper bandwagon and just kind of didn't necessarily look back 
But I remember, like, the first time I picked up Mental Jewelry, I was like, why have I never listened to this before? Yeah. And there's just, like, a really good energy to it. And I still forget about it. So when I was listening to Secret Samadhi while working, you know, it goes to other music. And then um, Operation Spirit came on. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why haven't I listened to this in years? It's one that whenever I put on, I'm like, I should listen to this one more. But it happens with a lot of bands where they put out a good, solid debut to get a foothold and then it's the second album that really blows up and throwing copper blew up big big time it was all over mtv and the radio it sold all the records it got all the video plays and it made those young men a kajillion dollars yeah and they had all kinds of money and clout and that gave them industry support to pretty much do whatever they wanted to do it is interesting. You have your new notes here, and I do too. Uh, we want to go back to that Toad album mm-hmm. when we talked about Coil. And Toad was being bullied by the record label that they wanted them to follow the success that Live had and use Jerry Harrison. Jerry Harrison didn't have huge success with the first album, but he refined that relationship by throwing copper. Yeah, Toad's label made such a big deal over what producer they use and wanting to capture live success that live after proving themselves successful they were able to say you know what we're not going to work with jerry harrison and just do whatever we want and everybody was willing to just accept it it shows that the incongruity within the industry Mm -hmm. that can be so frustrating listening back to this album it just makes me that much more upset that coil was not a bigger album than it was in the day I don't know about you, but like in researching this, I didn't find a whole lot of written material. Like I found the initial reviews for the album, most of which seemed to kind of rag on it a bit. But for looking up quotes and stuff, I had to turn to YouTube. And watch some of Ed's videos? Well, I found a lot of interviews that he's done since. Yeah. And in all these video interviews where Ed's just sitting there, he's still moving his head side to side as he talks to whoever he's talking to. Uh Just because he's used to, you know, like playing to the crowd. And so his head's constantly moving. But it is the result of the constant head turns and him being bald and really driving points home with his eyebrows. I had the realization that Ed Kowalczyk is a Muppet. (laughs) That's really funny. I did have an interview that I'll be referencing later from March 8th, 1997, published in the Georgia Strait, where they talked to Chad Taylor. Very interesting on how he takes, uh, knowing now that he's been kicked out of the band, it's, I'll just go ahead and read it now because we can get into it. He was talking about, you know, there's a dramatic change from throwing copper to secret Samadhi. We're getting a lot more gritty. The band, it's more edgy. There's more, it's more jarring. Mm-hmm. It's less formulaic. He said, I don't think it's necessarily how we were feeling. I just think it's the direction of the emotion that seemed to want to come out of us at the time, you know, because of the fact that it's spiritually generated, our music tends to attach onto the more serious side of life. There's definitely some hope and inspiration there, but at the same time, it deals with the reality that we're stuck in, which is maybe not always that great. Mm -hmm. But then when they pushed on him, you know, about the lyrics understanding you know where they're going he says uh, i can honestly say that speaking for chad patrick and myself we never pay attention to the lyrics it's like what happens when you've been singing a song that's been on the radio for years and one day you realize that you've been singing the wrong words i've done that quite a few times with our own songs and that was in reference (laughs) to how he's not really sure what ed's going for and he's not bothered by it i don't know if i had read that same bit from him or something similar where he kind of talked more about ed's the lyricist yep he's the guitarist everyone in the band was focused on the their parts, bringing what they can bring to it. And so where the band started to finally fall apart was starting with Distance to Hear and then especially the next album or two, it was very much more Ed was writing songs to bring to the band and having expectations of everyone playing these songs as they sounded in his head rather than being a collaborative process, which everything up and through Secret Samadhi was. And again, we can get into that more on the next one because this one, they were firing on all cylinders. There was a quote from Ed about this album, where after talking about the success of Throwing Copper and then this following success of their two years of touring, which followed the release of the album, he said about the new album, I see it as an album that's a statement about the fact that even though all the success had happened, we still considered ourselves artists. What it did was to kind of rearrange everybody's vision of the band, including our own. And I think that's true in a lot of ways. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? And I think that was very much reflected in 
the reviews that it received, for better or for worse, yeah. they were all young men, right? At the time that they started working on Secret Samadhi, they were 24. Right, and they were massively popular already. I'd found a collection of journal entries that Chad Taylor had shared about this time period, and so he kind of chronicled the era and broke it down. He says, I bought a house with cash and moved into a swanky neighborhood in Lancaster, PA, only a few blocks from where Ed had also purchased a home. Can you imagine that? Buying a house with cash at that age. Or ever. <laughs> I mean, in this market, yes. But, <laughs> I mean, having that kind of cash at that age. He says that Gracie moved to Portland. Patrick escaped the party life of South Beach. And so he and Ed were still in PA and still riding the high of the success that they were on. And they'd get together at this local club where they knew the manager, and they would play during the day and kind of like fiddle around and rehearse. But he does say that he wrote the Rift Lakini's Juice on the third floor of his house, passing out after several bottles of wine. That's a sick riff. So they were kind of like just rehearsing and screwing around, but he remembers specifically that what spearheaded is one day Ed brought in Gas Head, and Chad really liked that. From that point, working on writing other new materials, they had a handful of songs. They had Gas Head, Freaks, Turn My Head, and a couple others that didn't make it onto the record. Mm -hmm. And they turned to demoing at the Church Box, which was a local studio that some friends of theirs had built out of an old church. They got these demos. They sent these demos to their manager. Their manager says, I really like what you're doing. But before we start putting money into making a new record, write a bit more because you still don't have the single yet. And so he wanted them to push themselves. And they decided they didn't want to push themselves in the middle of winter in Pennsylvania. So they went to Jamaica. Hmm. According to Ed... We went to Jamaica and rented this really cool house and drank a lot of wine and sat around the pool and just hung out. And the record doesn't sound anything like Jamaica, but let's just say we were friendly with the gardener in Jamaica. Very friendly. <laughs> and I think maybe that is his explanation for the lyrics. Okay. I'm thinking about this and I think about the whole concept that people like to talk about how you can't make good art when everything's going well. Everything for the band was going well, and so Ed didn't really have anything to complain about. So I guess it's not surprising that we got what we got lyrically on this record. No, I... But there was a point while they were writing more, they had pretty much wrapped everything up. And Ed was like, hey... He'd busted out the tape that Chad had made of that Lakini's Juice riff and played it and was like, what do we do with this? And at that point, Chad had kind of forgotten all about it, but he was like, oh yeah. And so they start screwing around. And since it's such that deep driving thing, Ed decided that he kind of wanted to go high to counter it. And on one of the first run throughs when they actually had lyrics and Ed is yelling more wine as the song does, the butler for this rented house interrupted the jam bring to them more bring wine. them more wine, <laughs> like any good butler should. But that was kind of the process of their uh, writing in Jamaica. Huh. It made a sick song, though. Yeah, so they came away from Jamaica with Lakini's Juice and a handful of others, and that was enough then to convince management that it was time to start recording. So they came back to the States... We switch things up, right? Go with Jay Healy instead of, we, we know is tried and true. Instead of tried and true, Jerry Harrison. Do you know what Jay Healy has done most recently? Most recently, he has done some sort of wealth management startup. What his credits most recently are? His most recent credits, no. But I know what his old credits were. His most recent credit was as an engineer and engineer vocal for the Rarities album of Mariah Carey in 2020. Yep. That was because he done had stuff before. done all of her stuff before, yep. Yep. He stopped actually doing music, like, back in 2010, right? Yep. He pretty much stopped and moved on to investment banking and wealth management and stuff that requires wearing a suit, I imagine. The music he's done has been so interesting. He did Foreigner, he did Live, Boys to Men, but he also did, like, Mark Anthony, Savage Garden, Mariah Carey, Billy Joel, Whitney Houston, Houston, Springsteen, Cher... Michael Bolton, Luther Vandross, Joan Jett, Patti Smith, Barry Manilow, even Frank freaking Sinatra. He recorded Old Blue Eyes. 
But most of this work, most of his studio work actually was as an engineer right, rather than producer, a producer. Right. That's why they brought him in for this album was because they really wanted somebody to capture what they were doing live. Mm-hmm. In his journal about it, Chad said, Jay Healy was brought in to record and produce the band. I thought what we needed based on the church box sessions was less of a producer and more of an engineer who would document the material. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what they were were looking for was just somebody to document rather than to shape the sound because the band had spent all that time building the sound figuring out what that sound was so they decided to get everything together and they found a studio in san francisco and they set out to record in san francisco do you know how well that went not well not well at all there were some noise problems with the San Francisco studio. They kept getting this buzz and everything, and they couldn't figure out what it was or where it was from. Yep. So they packed everything up, went down to a studio in L.A., and did they have any better luck there? They did not. Why not? This album was cursed. It seems that way. It does seem that way. Ed had an allergic reaction to the studio dog. And in the words of Chad Taylor, at this point, we fired Jay. As we had already spent several hundred thousand dollars and didn't have a note recorded, we headed home to regroup. The entire band was depressed. It was truly our first major failure, and we would have to struggle to gather ourselves and continue. After a short break, Jay called Ed and I, pushing us to use the Hit Factory in NYC, a well-known buzz and pet-free studio, and we could start in a week if we agreed to put him back on the board's producer. So they did that. He says, we added a 40-piece orchestra to Lakini's Juice and Turned My Head, and once again tracked the band without click tracks live in a large room. The only overdubs were vocal doubles, very few harmonies, some guitar solos, however, Gashead and Grays were cut live, and the string sections. We wanted a raw record and got it, which is funny that it's our rawest record that also got called overproduced. He says, this is my all-time favorite live album and the one I felt most represented my sonic vision of the band, and I can feel us let go and flow musically like at no other point in our career. He talks about how it makes him cry. When I listen to this album, I'm driven to tears. I can't imagine how much better it would have been if we have not had the stops and starts associated with San Francisco and L.A. But it's still so good. I know it had to be frustrating by the time they got to New York. That and and feeling rushed into the studio, only having like a week at that point to get your gear and to get there. Yep. And you're kind of held hostage. You can do this in a week if you rehire me, right? Right. Now, to be fair, Jay Healy had done most of his work at the Hit Factory in, in New York at that point. So it's where he was comfortable and he was familiar with everything and he had a good relationship with whoever owns the studio and so i think it was him trying to do the band a favor a solid and just be like hey this is a good studio it's a proven studio but studios tend to book out and if you don't get on the calendar quick enough sometimes you can be screwed but sometimes things fall through and i think this is one of those instances where they had some time open up and they got lucky to get in where they did when they did yep that was the birth of secret samadhi i want to get into the layout of the album Okay. We jump in like the order and how absolutely perfect the opening of this album is. I think that's been my main takeaway is listening through this album as much as I have is is how well it's sequenced. It's so good. It flows from one track to the other, and that's something that I have in my notes on some of the songs that we'll talk about. But yeah, it's it was very thought out and very well put together and ordered in a way that seemed right. Yep. But before we get into that, do you know what the meaning of the album name is? The Samadhi part or the secret part? Either. Samadhi is a term in a lot of religions, Far Eastern religions and yogic schools. It's a state of intense concentration achieved through meditation. Hmm. In Hindi yoga, it is regarded as the final stage at which union with the divine is reached before at the time of death. Interesting. The couple of explanations I came upon were more of the band choosing to use it as more of the journey itself rather than the achievement of the end destination. But I think both can be applicable. And secret is something that is not well known that may be held between a a small group of people or even one person that they don't share broadly. Do you remember the short-lived attempt at the interactive music magazine launch? Yes. So... I came across the interview footage from that live did for launch because apparently that was like our freshman year of high school. 
For those of you who don't know what Launch was, Launch was a startup attempt at a music magazine that came with an interactive CD-ROM component. yeah, in the magazine, yeah. So you would put the CD in your CD player, and essentially would open you into, like, Launch Town, or whatever it was. Yeah. And you had a little cafe area, and there were a couple other different, like, buildings or portions of kind of like a downtown area. I remember one of them, they had an interview with Shaquille O'Neal, and you clicked on the basketball court, and it would take you into the basketball court, and there was a rack of basketballs, and you'd click on a basketball, and each basketball would then open up a portion of this interview with Shaq. But there was also the acoustic cafe, and you would click on that, and you would go in, and whatever artist was featured that month, they had one or two songs that they were performing and then they had some interview footage i found the video of live's contribution to that on youtube as one of the interview things that i found one of the things that each member of the band kind of discusses briefly is the meaning of the album name and so that's why i is that the video where they're all sitting in that weird room yes and they just take turns sitting and ed introduces it okay i found that interview yeah so that's from launch oh that's funny i didn't know that was from launch okay i saw that interview over the years, I've tried to explain the concept of this interactive music magazine to people. And occasionally, like, I've found different footage online. And I miss it. I thought it was brilliant. I mean, mind you, it was always hard to find somebody who had a computer with a graphics card that was new enough to play the CD. Right. But it was ambitious, and I, I loved it. But one of the things that they talk about is how they'd taken that term for Samadhi and maybe used it a little out of context to meet their own needs. Yeah. They also kind of mentioned that there's so much behind the band and so much that they go through that the public may never be aware of as far as what that journey for them has been or continues to be. And that's kind of the secret aspect. But I think the other Chad, because there's two Chads in the band, I think other Chad wrapped it up best when he just described it as, we just liked the way the words sounded together. When you start to analyze any name, it starts to become stupid. (laughs) Before we get stupid by overanalyzing it, and before we jump in, do you have any strong memories associated with this album? I remember buying it. Okay. I did not go to the live tour for Secret Samadhi. No. You went to very few tours with me. Uh, You went to this one, though, at Cynthia Woods, right? I did. It was, yep. Was it the Woodlands? Um, This was one where... Oh, you have it here in your notes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is one where one of my older brothers was home from college at the time that they were coming through. And so I convinced my mom to buy us tickets because he was always her favorite. (laughs) So it was like, this is a concert that I know John would enjoy. And it's something that we can do as a family. So she got tickets and we all went. I believe Luscious Jackson opened. I remember that they had kind of this gothic scaffold archwork set up as their stage decoration and i thought that was pretty cool and they did a good job of mixing up songs from secret samadhi and throwing copper and mental jewelry and i thought it was great and then the next morning before school my mother made sure to have a talk to me about how she did not enjoy it at all well i mean it wasn't like peter paul and mary right i did actually see peter paul and mary with my mom at the woodlands as well that's why i referenced it okay then I think she just wasn't comfortable with Ed bearing his bald head and his bald chest with reckless abandon. I can't blame him. It was hot. That was the problem. Like, it's a great outdoor theater, but for like the two months that it's not 5,000 degrees. You weren't able to start a bottle fight with your mom there either. No, but we will do Seven Mary Three so we can talk about that. We will. This is kind of Ed's awakening of shaking it a bit more on stage. A lot more of that hip movement that Elvis used to get in trouble for. Oh. I don't know. My mother just did not approve. (laughs) (laughs) What did John think, though? I don't know, because he got to take a date. I don't know if he really paid as much attention to the show as I did. I don't think they were super serious, but I don't know. I guess I could have asked him in preparation for this. I have also seen live on two other occasions. Oh, yeah? I saw them shortly after moving to California, back-to-back nights opening for Counting Crows at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. Oh, nice. Although that was when they would have been more distance to here and Crows would have been doing this desert life. Hence why they were opening for the Crows. I'll save those stories for one of those albums. I love the Counting Crows, too. They're so much fun life. They are. Unless you see Adam Duritz at his 50th birthday. And then it's just (laughs) dang depressing. (laughs) 
was editing whichever episode it was the other day when we came across us talking about Anthony, Anthony looking like Ab- I brought that up on our other podcast as well nice. and uh, he said he would gladly take it as a compliment to be compared to the man who dated both Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox at their prime so to the man who Brad Pitt had to settle for his sloppy seconds yes uh, how did people receive this album Mark how what, what did they think from the reviews of the time it seemed that it was not received very well there were some people who loved it, but a lot of them were mediocre at best. I guess you could consider it was mixed. Yeah. Like Spokesman talked about Live's brilliance, which was one that I really enjoyed. Even the ones that seemed positive all at one point or another seemed to get caught up overanalyzing or potentially underanalyzing the opening lyrics of the album. You mentioned that you think the album opens brilliantly, and I think musically it does as well. We've already alluded to the fact that the lyrics on here are potentially questionable places, and everyone gets hung up on just the opening line of the album. Let's go hang out in the mall or a morgue, a smorgasbord. Let's go hang out in a church. We'll go find Lurch. Then we'll haul ass down through the Abbey. Well, that's more credit than people give it, because everyone just gets hung up on let's go hang out in a mall. Yeah. That seems to be what everybody talks about. Which is really dumb, because you can tell it's not this cultural yay mall. He immediately follows it up by or a morgue. Right. And so, like, there was one review that says, Kowalczyk's lyrics are seldom as exalted as the band's music. Let's go hang out in a mall is the album's first line. And other songs take an equally mundane view of grand events. That was the Washington Post. <sighs> Rolling Stone said, When Kowalczyk, live's charismatic lead singer, introduces Secret Samadhi's opener, Rattlesnake, with the line, let's go hang out in a mall, he's being neither ironic nor glib. He's serious. Admit it. It's kind of fun to go to the mall, right? That's... You can't say that when the next line is or a morgue. Yeah, and I think it kind of represents the state of media just being all about soundbite culture and how soundbite culture, I mean, we even more so today have been exposed to it constantly thanks to TikTok and Instagram and social media and nobody fact-checking anything. It's all about things taken out of context and reducing art or culture or life into soundbites without full context is reckless and irresponsible. Because I agree. Let's go hang out in a mall or a morgue. Just the contrast of ideas there. And it's so weird that so quickly into the album, they would just try to find something to get hung up on. Yeah, without even getting past the first line. Yeah, I agree with you. You look at Live's prior work, and it's not like Ed has ever been super cohesive with thought throughout. All of his songs, it seems like it's kind of stream of consciousness, sometimes a little bit more linear than others. Yeah. And one of the things that I found interesting in the interviews was people would be like, so this song, it says these words, and it, you're kind of referencing this, right? And almost every time he's like, no. No, that's not really what I was going for, and I don't know if that's him just trying to seem deep, or if it is actually true. But he says that he likes to try to walk the line between depth and being vague. He says you don't want to be too vague, but at the same time, you want everybody to be able to bring their own thing to it. On this album, at times, I think maybe he does get a little too vague, but... Well, you know, you could just follow Chad's approach and just say, we don't even know the, the lyrics. <laughs> but... At the same time, if you are going to judge the lyrics, I think it's better to look at the lyrics as a whole, because part of what he's saying here, I and mean, if you look at like the, the back half of this verse, is, is it money, is it fame? What's in a name? Shame? Is it money, is it fame, or were they always this lame? There's an apathy. There's a, there's a societal apathy that's happening here, right? There's that, and more than apathy, it's more of a saying, it doesn't matter. I'm going to agree with you on that, and also say I feel a serious sense of boredom as well here. Mm-hmm. And that could maybe go back to what I mentioned earlier about, you know, the whole idea of it's hard to make interesting art when things are going well. So maybe he is bored. Yeah. At this point, I think he was pretty secure with where he was religiously and with his meditation and everything else. And the band was successful. And at the same time, recognizing does any of it actually matter? It's all the same. And it can all equally be pointless. I think that was a solid theme from the 90s. Yeah. But I like I like the chorus on this one. It's a crazy, crazy mixed-up town, but it's the rattlesnake I fear. I like that because it's just saying that, again, nothing matters, and the things that you may actually be afraid of are so far removed from society or not. 
And again, this is me applying my own, you know, rationalization into it. Well, I'm going to pull in lyricalinterpretations.com okay. from October 17, 2020. Of course, the rattlesnake is the symbolic don't tread on me emblem. I believe he's concerned about the small town ultra conservative views spreading and prevailing. Right. Because that was definitely a big thing in 1997. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't know about you, but as an adult, I don't have the fears like I did when I was a kid. I'm not afraid of the dark, and I'm not afraid of heights. And Not true. I mean, nobody loves the dark. But I had this realization that pretty much the only thing I am legitimately afraid of in my life at the moment is mountain lions. I've had a couple encounters I would consider near misses with mountain lions. Huh, okay. And so this random thing that's so far removed from everyday life, but just for the sake of having something. Yeah. I kind of see that. But the other reason that I really like the chorus is the second half of that was in another place and another time I'd be driving trucks, my dear. I'd be skinning hunted deer. Yeah. I think that it might be that portion of the song, which is what led to his inclusion in the movie Fight Club. There is that <laughs> portion where Ed Norton's kind of in that dream state in and out, and he keeps hearing Brad Pitt talking. And one of the things that he talks about is society collapsing and nature taking over the cities and you be stalking deer down expressways. It almost seems like a line from... Paulinette? Yep. I think in order to help understand this, you might need to drink some pretty heavy Lakini's juice. Who is Lakini, Mark? Your mom. Close. She's the Hindu goddess of destruction. That sounds correct. Ed and the boys, when they were making the record, certainly were drinking something, and they were drinking a lot of it. And in one interview about the album, Ed does say, the record is so bizarre and lyrically so out there that I still really don't know what most of it is about. <laughs> so admitting that there's so much going on that he doesn't necessarily know how to explain it, even though he's the one who wrote it. Well, I mean, understanding how much they were drinking and screaming for wine and people bringing it to them makes some sense. Ed said he's talking about how strong that guitar rift is, how harsh compared to the orchestral strings that they have. Mm -hmm. They have a 40 piece they're playing softly that's being almost overpowered by this guitar. He said the two together make the yin yang of the song. There's two elements that give it depth, a mystery that I think is unique. Even though we might be rocking in a song like the Kini's Juice, you never get the sense that it's gratuitously in your face just to be kind of angry with you or to get mm -hmm. at you. It's aggression kind of conscious, kind of in the music, kind of up inside it. Right. I think it's the same interview. He says that like whether it's a consciousness towards sexuality or just a consciousness towards rock, but the idea of just being conscious of what you're doing in the moment I found the video of them performing this on SNL, and it was so good. I will have to go look that up. But Lakini's Juice, yes, track number two. And this was the first single mm -hmm. off the record. And in the spirit of destroying the old and starting new, since Lightning Crashes had been the last single previously released before this new album, they chose this one to start, and it's kind of an anti-Lightning Crashes. Oh, absolutely. Everyone talks about how heavy this song is because of that main guitar rift, the junk, cha junk, junk. And rather than heavy, personally, I think I would describe it as either crunchy or chunky. And I think about it in those terms. And I had a realization a couple nights ago while listening to this album and compiling my notes around 3 a.m. Because all good thoughts happen at 3 in the morning. Right. That realization being how much the guitar part for the song felt like it could have been at home on Enema. I was kind of surprised that nobody in any of their reviews had made the comparison. And in turn, it led to the realization that looking beyond that one guitar part, you look at the dark tomes throughout the album, and you look at Ed's obscure mysticism-driven philosophy laid out through the lyrics, and it occurred to me that Secret Samadhi is Live's attempt at making a Tool record. You know, what's funny about that is, uh, for those of you who were obviously not on the call, I was reminded of the same thing. So I called Mark and quoted an enema lyric to him as my opening greeting for this call tonight. Live obviously don't have the prog chops of Tool, but I think Ed and Maynard at least were clearly on similar journeys and making similar discoveries along the way. It's just that one of them was just achieving it through meditation and study of Eastern religion, and the other was more into psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. But really with this one for me, I think more than the sound of the guitars or Ed's vocals, which I think are, are amazing on this track, he's just soaring all over the place with them. What really gives this track its power and its ability to stay fresh so many years later is that it kind of breaks from the traditional verse-chorus-verse-rock format, yep. and it's all about build-up. 
and it builds for nearly two and a half minutes before hitting that first kind of release point. Yep. And then since you've had a kind of release point and to give it some commercial viability, it repeats the opening, I wouldn't say verse, but the opening lines and kind of uses those to bookend, but then also to rebuild it up further to what then is the song's main climax. Mm-hmm. Which Ed goes through that main climax and then immediately slows it down, which is a mm-hmm. really cool shift in the music. Not only does he slow it down, but he says, as the music shifts and we get out of this very, I don't know, I, I keep saying harsh, but I don't know how else to word it. This very rock vibe. He says, slow down, we're too afraid. And then he goes into his singing of this, let me ride, let me ride, burn my eyes, let me ride. Mm-hmm. His, his voice is beautiful compared to the more wine part, right? So for me, we've been listening to this song for 25 years, right? Yep. And something that I had never really picked up on, because I've just been listening to it casually and enjoying it for 25 years, wasn't until recently that you finally sat down and critically listened to it. And it wasn't until about the sixth or seventh time through that right around the three-minute mark, there's a final yell of let me ride before he then brings it down and just starts saying it over and over quickly. The way he hits and holds that note the last time he is actually singing ride and he holds it out, his voice breaks. And for a moment, it just goes from controlled to just like a full-on kind of cathartic wail. Yeah. And it's something that I had never noticed before and I think it was very powerful. Also, having listened to it for 25 years now, to the song's credit, like I said, it's all about build-up. It's just Ed in that chunk, chunk, chunk for the first 40 seconds before the rhythm section enters. Then the strings come in at about a minute in, and it's something that I also had never thought about. There was never the thought that, holy crap, live has an orchestra now and Sonic Youth is in my cooler. (laughs) I'd never thought about it because I'd never consciously had to think about it. I'd never questioned why is there an orchestra and a live song. It always just made sense and always just felt right. And I think that's where the power of a song like this comes from, is that everything is just firing on all cylinders to just make the song the best it can be and everything it needs to be just in service of the song. Yep. And I'm going to go on and say this is definitely my top three. I'll I'll give a spoiler to later. (laughs) This is high up there. I have a feeling it's in yours, too. Oh, look at you looking ahead to your top three. I'm so proud. Right? So we bump from Lakini's Juice to Grays. Yep. Track three. After all the energy of Lakini's Juice, track three, Grays is a nice, it's a nice break. It starts off simple and mellow. And in its own right, it does grow to a bigger sound, as most live songs do. But it takes nearly a minute before it gets there. So we have plenty of time to catch our breath. I like your note that you put on these where you talk about how journalists talked about this being darker than throwing copper. Mm-hmm. This track doesn't have that darker feel at all. Plus, I'm going to say it doesn't get much darker than a woman dying in childbirth. Please stop calling this album darker. That was kind of the point of that note. Yeah. Everyone talks about this being a darker album than throwing copper. But if you're saying that, then obviously you've only ever heard the singles and never listened to throwing copper. Right. Lightning Crashes has a very calm, radio playable sound to it. But the lyrics are very deep and troubling. Musically, even, there's plenty of darkness. There's plenty of it. Yeah. But it's people listening to three songs that they heard on the radio and being experts on. Right. Because that's what you get from music journalists. Yep. And yes, I did just do the air quotes with my hands. I heard the air quote in your hands. So this track and a handful of others, and I don't necessarily want to label them as filler tracks, but for lack of a better term, I think they have like a very similar vibe to a lot of the, for lack of a better term, filler tracks from Throwing Copper. This one, for instance, to me feels a lot like TBD or Pillar of Davidson. I think musically, as far as what the band's doing and their approach to the song and tonality, doesn't strike me as darker, but very similar, which is the same band, so that makes sense. It does make sense. You would expect them to sound like their other stuff, right? Yep, at least one album to the next. This song didn't impress me, though. There's just so many other big hits on this. Yeah, and I think this one, within the sequencing of things, like I said, it just kind of lets us catch our breath. Yeah. Because Looking Needs Juice is such a build-up and such a emotional thing, yep. potentially, that you don't want to go straight into something else that would be emotionally draining. It would make the album feel very long. Could take a whole century to get through. Oh, 
Speaking of Sentry, the next song. We dive into this song that's got a happy feel. It feels a lot lighter than some of the other stuff we heard. But um, we're singing about things not being the best. It's not a positive area we're in. He talks about being surrounded by people. Everybody's here. The puke stinks like beer. This could be a city. This could be a graveyard. You stole my idea. And the continuity from thought to thought continues that seamless through the rest of the song. Mm-hmm. To its credit... Lyrically, for better or for worse, they do create strong imagery. And on the plus side, he doesn't say the word placenta. He did not say placenta in this, but he does talk about who I assume is Aldous Huxley. Probably. I did read one review that was wagering that the song was about waking up after the millennium, which I think that they meant to say rapture. But then again, that's giving Ed credit for trying to do something high concept intentionally and not just... Throwing words down? Throwing words down, indeed. Which, given what he told us about not knowing what some of this stuff means, I'm inclined to believe that's the case for this song. Agreed. As much as it would be nice to have a concrete thing to say that, yes, this is that thing. Yep. Waking up the morning after the rapture would be a nice, easy bow to put on this, but I don't think it is that easy. I don't think so either. I don't know that that's what he was intending. And not to say that he isn't potentially capable of intentionally writing songs with depth, but I don't think that's what he was going for here. No, I don't either. I think the next song, Ghost, there is more depth to it, intentional. Mm -hmm. The whole next song, Ghost, track five, it's a very interesting song. We go back to that darker, the music sounds darker again. Mm -hmm. Ed's voice is more, as we open up, it's more subdued, lower volume. I really like this song. I really don't have any idea what it's about. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from the opening, the opening he tells us is that everybody has a ghost. Everybody has a ghost who sings like you do. Yours is not like mine, but it's all right. Keep it up. Yep. But I really like the way this song builds. And when we get to that chorus, where did I go wrong? Where Ed is bringing the power over and over again and then tones it back down. It's a ride. I feel like I'm on a ride here. Yeah. And I'm, I'm here for it. You know, we we mentioned earlier that Mental Jewelry is such a good record. And I think the reason that it's such a good record specifically is because the rhythm section. Yeah. They're just constantly letting loose and just jamming. And I think one reason people don't give this album more credit is because it's all such a guitar-focused rock album. On a lot of the songs, the drums and the bass kind of take the backseat and they don't get to come out and shine the way that they have on prior albums. Oh, they do here, though. Yeah, and on this one, it's a dark and understated track, but it's built around the rhythm section creating a nice, dark, understated driving groove that Ed can really sink his teeth into and just vibe with his vocal delivery. And I think you did mention the drums, too. I know you were a percussionist. You Mm -hmm. have a lot more focus on percussion than I usually do. I don't notice it as much. But I really hear that drum coming out in here. Yeah. This is a great song. Another banger. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like Ed, when he hits that chorus, and when the rhythm guitar is really kicking in, the drums are kicking in, it just sounds like the entire band just comes unsheathed. Uh, See what I did there? Track six, unsheathed. (laughs) Now, I will say that for all of Ed's Eastern influences, it takes us until track six of Secret Samadhi for the band to finally bring in a sitar. (laughs) Right? I mean, if we're calling it Secret Samadhi, we've got references, you know, to... You have a portrait of Lakini on the cover. You do. And so, yeah. So for all of that, six tracks in, this one also starts simple and it proceeds that way with light music and soft vocals and kind of lulls us in. And then the song erupts at about 145. We start getting the music in at 117 where the sitar fades mm-hmm. and we start getting to more traditional Western instruments. And I missed it. The sitar had such a nice addition early on. But once that goes out and the band comes just them in their normal format, like that contrast of kind of going from the soft to kind of just going all out rock, it again felt to me very much like a live thing to do and very, very much in line with throwing copper and especially reminded me of I alone. <sighs> Such a good song. Lyrically, there's the potential for something incredibly deep in some of the lines. For sure. But also maybe not. Yeah, I don't know what the obsession around free love is. I don't click with this song as much, but I do like that opening. Lyrically, I do like some of it. Like, yeah. behold the unsheathing. She thinks it's, it's love. love. The blade is not ready to cut. It's dull from our thinking. It's rough. And so I think that could be interpreted as a lot of the same ideas of what we talked about with Toad, of man struggling with themselves internally. Yep. He does trash talk hippies, too, in the song, which I enjoyed. The hippies ruin everything. 
Which is funny because, like Chad, I had kind of always misheard that line. Yeah. I had always thought it was free love wasn't just another party for the hippest to ruin rather than for the hippies Hippies to ruin. ruin. But I think the meaning doesn't really change. Yep. It's just people that are trying too hard. I agree. It's another one where I guess you can just stay up all night thinking about what it actually is supposed to mean. I'm afraid that would cause some insomnia, which, depending on your connection, may also lead to a hole in the universe. Track seven, Insomnia and the Hole in the Universe. Do you like this song? Like is such a strong word. (laughs) My notes for this song in their entirety read, If anything... Reading the lyrics to the song raise more questions than it gives answers. So I'm just going to grin and move on politely. Okay. Song eight. Uh, however, be- beyond that, musically, <laughs> I, musically, I do like the song. I think it does have an interesting groove to it. I want to like the song. I do not want to, and I do not like it. And I'm with you. Once I actually read the lyrics, I liked it even less. This is one where I didn't necessarily need to read the lyrics because he enunciates well enough that I always knew what they were and how little sense they made. Yeah, I just never really listened to the song. I just usually skipped it. and It always made you turn your head? It did. This song I do stop to listen to. Beat you to that one. I could tell where you were going. Track eight. I want you to read what you wrote on your notes here. Yeah, track eight, Turn My Head. It's the third single from the album. It is. I like your reference to this being a soft ballad in the vein of Lightning Crashes. Mm-hmm. I think that was intentional. I think that's why they put the orchestra on this one. Yep. Lightning Crashes was such a hugely successful song for the band. I think it's easy to forget that it was everywhere, and people who weren't into rock music still loved that song. Yep. That was Debbie's favorite song. That was all she wanted to listen to. She just wanted to like listen to that song on repeat over and over and over again. That's not a repeat over and over and over again song. You had so many warning signs with so many people you were with, Mark. <laughs> I know. I've come to realize that if there's ever anyone that I'm really into, then I need to proceed with caution because there's obviously something wrong with them. So there are those who would blame this band and, to an extent, this album as opening the door and paving the way for the onslaught of Creed. But when you look at this song as the album's attempt to recreate the somber, soft ballad success of Lightning Crashes, and you look at how much the sound of this song specifically feels like it's setting up the vibe of what we get from distance to here... I would say that if you were to blame this band and this album for anything, it's not for leading commercial rock radio towards Creed. I'd argue it's more responsible for making viable rock bands like Matchbox 20 and emboldening them to follow the sounds of songs like 3AM instead of the obviously better rock track of Long Day. Or even killing the hard edge of a band like Filter and making it acceptable for them to go from Hey Man, Nice Shot to Asleep on an Airplane. Oh, yeah. It was a weird period musically, but this definitely gives us our first solid hint at... Future of live? Yeah. What the live sound will be in the foreseeable future, yes. So I legit can't tell by your description and your writing here. Do you enjoy this song? I do. However, Throwing Copper came out in 93, 94. Yep. This came out in 97. Distance to Here came out in 99. So this album and Distance to Here were both kind of in my brain at this point in time they kind of mesh themselves together there's a couple songs that like i knew lakini's juice was this one i knew dolphins cry was that one yeah but to be honest when i first put this on to listen through it there were one or two songs that i realized were distance to hear songs that i kept waiting to come up in the rotation of this album huh Turn My Head would fit really nicely on Distance to Hear. Right. And like we said, more than any of the other tracks on this album show the bands growing up and maturing and solidifying what the live sound would become. And it is them firing on all cylinders like real grown-ass musicians. Yep. The one point at which I feel like we have too dramatic of a shift on this album is when we go from Turn My Head to Hero Psycho Dreamer. It's a jarring transition. It's all one word, so you got to say it all together really fast. Hero Psycho Dreamer. There we go. So the transition from Turn My Head to Hero Psycho Dreamer is very jarring for me. It's the opposite of Lakini's Juice into Grace, in that after the battled lushness of Turn My Head, this brings the energy back up and delivers another rhythm section driven track that's driven by a really nice, beefy bass line, but agreed that Turn My Head just kind of 
brings you in and puts you in such a good place. It's just kind of like a nice, warm place that you don't want to come out of. Right. And even Dad's vocals in this one just turn me off. I think part of it is lyrically. I think part of it's the way he approaches. Um, I'm not a big fan of people you screaming at me that they're going to kill me. Right. But I do think it sets the stage for a song I do enjoy next. And you are comfortable with people yelling that you are a freak, so... I don't know that I'm comfortable with it as much as I had a lot of practice and experience with it. <laughs> uh, Freak, song 10. Yep. This was the second single. Yes. And I like this one as well. Not just because we have a reference to Geraldo Rivera, who... Do you know how crazy that man is? I do not. He is full on like QAnon. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, I like a lot of the lines in here. There's just like this visceral approach and look at stuff. It starts very soft. The instruments build up to crescendo as Ed just lets loose and screams, will you call her freak? Will you call them freaks? I don't know. There are so many really good lines. The one that gets me, he says, if the mother goes to bed with you in the bowels of the cathedral, will you render her asunder with what she really needs? Or will you crash that beautiful silence with some talk about finding yourself in your mother's arms? I don't know. That's just really, I'm trying to think of how I want to word this because I enjoy this song. I enjoy the imagery that he builds on. It comes together almost poetically. This, this feels like a very poetic song to me, hmm. you know, except for the whole part about sperm. I'm going to take the other side on this one. I think it feels like a weird choice for a single. I mean, I can agree with that. It's not what I would typically expect from a single. Usually singles don't sping about bowels and sperm. <laughs> but this is a band that, you know, built its foundation on placenta. I was going to say, we did not revert back to placenta in this one. <laughs> to an extent, I guess it's another that feels to me similar-ish to some of the throwing copper filler songs. That's fair. I can see why you'd feel that way. So I can see that maybe there was a push to try to, like, get people to be in familiar territory. But if that's the case, I think there's other tracks on the album that do that better. But if you did want to showcase the band being artists and pushing themselves in new directions, I think there's also other tracks that probably do it better than this one as well. But I will say, maybe this is one thing why you're into it. To me, the guitars on this one sound like it would be better serviced as a Bush song, especially something off of Razorblade Suitcase. Fair. And Bush being one of the few bands at this time who you could argue were bigger than live. And I know you love them something fierce. So I think that's maybe. Yeah, they were the first band I really got into on my own at 13. Uh, yeah, I want to go back and listen to it now with that in mind and think that through because I don't have an opinion on that yet. Now, the very last note I made into all my notes, I was listening through this album one last time before you called and we started recording. I had one other thought about this that maybe more so than sounding like Bush, the guitars of this one come off more of sounding like something from Our Lady Pieces album Clumsy, which came out three weeks prior to Secret Samadhi. I love Clum I love Our Lady Peace in general. So much of their stuff is are good albums. So many of their albums are good albums. I'll say that in proper English. <laughs> I don't like the country twang that we hear in America at all. So track eleven, America. Not America, but America. America. Being ahead of coining the term America. They were definitely early on that one, um, but I don't like it. I don't. It's trying too hard. I get what they're going for. They're making it unnecessarily twangy, and live just doesn't do twang well. Yeah, there's something going on here. I don't know if I would necessarily classify it as twangy, but I spend a lot more of my days listening to twangy alt-country music than you do. But for this one, while Turn My Head certainly feels like an insight of things to come for live as a band, I think America feels like an insight of what the future holds in store for Stone Temple Pilots as a band. This one, to me, just really felt like something that came off of one of their later records once Scott got clean and they stopped writing good songs. The music in the background, there are parts of it that remind me of Weezer. Hmm. Listen to it again with that and see if you hear that. I'd be interested to see what you think. I would. I would be very interested in that. So like I said, I just hear Stone Temple Pilots later stuff, like Days of the Week. Poor Scott. And we are to our last song, track 12, Gashead Goes West. My favorite part of this is Ed just hitting those high notes. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's a great tune to play us out. It is. It's mellow and acoustic driven and gives Ed a wonderful place and a wonderful amount of space to start off with his soft vocals and then let loose and have more range to play with and just go where he wants. And I think that helps it feel more impactful than it actually is if you're paying too close of attention to the lyrics, which in a way is a perfect summary for the album as a whole. Yeah. 
It does that classic 90s end as well, where it just ends and you hear the guitar fade out as the song ends, which is a great way for a late 90s album to end. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the song means, though. I have no idea. I don't know what gas hit is. Yeah. Who or what it's supposed to be, and apparently Ed doesn't know either. Nope. So, Cool. But it's one that almost seems more coherent than some of the others. <laughs> He's not calling us names. He's not talking about feeding angels bagels. There's nothing wrong with feeding angels bagels. That was just one of those lines that I had never noticed until somebody pointed out how stupid it was. It's really dumb. And I went back and I looked at it and since we didn't cover on whichever song it was. Feeding angels was insomnia and the hole in the universe. Okay. Angel, don't you have some bagels in my oven? <laughs> so dumb. Uh, so... Listening through this album critically has kind of been hard. And it's hard because... Because of nostalgia? Yeah. It's hard to overlook how odd it is lyrically while the band as musicians are all jiving so well. It is. What I keep coming back to is thinking about what the actual state of the music world was at this point in time. Because grunge has been dead. Yeah. Alternative hasn't been alternative for years. You have bands like Pearl Jam that are going soft with songs like Nothing Man. And all these people that were contemporaries. Ed gave an interview early in the Throne Copper Tour, kind of in the process, or the early stages of them really blowing up, that kind of addressed how life fit into the early 90s scene. And he said that people in our generation have similar feelings and emotions. We're faced with the same things. We feel a part of the music that's going on right now, not because we try to sound like it, but because as part of the unconscious movement of what's going on with our age of people, we just develop into what we are. We maintained our uniqueness, and yet we can't say we're not part of what's going on. That was Ed talking about Live in, like, 94. And so here in 97, at this point, Live are kind of outliers. Yeah. Because it's been so long between albums, they're kind of the last holdouts. Those contemporaries that Ed had been referring to in that interview have either died or they've broken up or they've made new albums that have moved away from the spirit of the early 90s. And at this point in time, commercial radio is creeping dangerously close to the advent of butt rock. Oh, butt rock. Because Gen Xers are starting to get too old to be the gatekeepers of cool. And they were in denial about all of those things at this time. And so while live was never grunge, they had been big enough during the right time period that people were looking to them as the one last holdout to deliver something to help relive former rock glories. And instead, live did what they did. We've already talked about the why of it, and in doing so, putting out this album that feels weird and out of place and very much transitional. Yeah. Because it is. It is. It still is. And in that way, for us, for me and you, I think it was kind of perfect for the time, and I think that we were actually lucky that this came midway through our high school days because we could embrace that transitional energy because that's what that period of life for us was all about. Yeah. I do remember times where I had my brown Corolla driving down the road blaring this album when I had a CD player that worked. It was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was one of the albums that I had that I really dug at the time. I have a tape player in, in my car, and I've had this car for about a year now. And so I've occasionally been digging old tapes out and seeing what still works. And I found one that just said live on it. And on one side, it was a recording of Secret Samadhi that I had recorded when The Buzz had played the whole album start to finish one morning, early before the morning show started. It's kind of as like a filler thing. I'd set an alarm, and I'd gotten up, and I'd hit record, and then I went back to bed. And so one side's that, but on the back side is a live performance of live from 97 that tour they did with angelfish because they thanked them at the end of their performance and it was from their san francisco stop because every summer i'd go visit my grandparents in the bay area and live 105 which is the rock station out there they'd play live shows in their entirety that was something that i just pulled out and came across random like three nights ago and that was a, a fun discovery hmm. anyway any other final thoughts on your end No, I'm with you. I don't want to listen to it critically again. Mm -hmm. I don't want to listen to this for the lyrics. I just want to enjoy the songs. I just want to enjoy the music. Yeah. Having listened to it critically, it hasn't ruined it for me by any means. No, not at all. But I don't want to listen to it that way anymore. (laughs) Right. Definitely not. So, your three picks. I think coming in at number three, I'm going to go with Gas Head Goes West. Don't know what it means. Really like listening to it. Number two... Ghost and number one, Lakini's Juice. 
Huh. Interesting. What are yours? For me, number three, Gashead Goes West. <laughs> That's surprising. Okay. Number two? Number two, Ghost. What? And number one, in an upset, Unsheathed. Okay. No, obviously it's like he needs juice. Yeah, I figured. I figured. So we, completely apart from one another, came up with the same three. Yeah. That's awesome. I thought maybe there was a chance that you would have turned my head, but yeah. No, as I really thought about it, I couldn't get there. Yeah, by no means is it a bad song, but I think that the other songs, to their credit, are stronger songs. And as we addressed, stronger songs that feel more like this album. I do too. So let us know what you think. What are your favorite songs? Did this album hold up for you? You can let us know. Go to our website, onceeverytwoweeks.com. Let us know what your favorite lyric is and what you think the most ridiculous lyric is. Aside from the angel cooking bagels, because everybody's going to agree on that one. Yep. What are we doing in two weeks, Mark? I'd had the thought that in order to give me something new and in order to give you somewhere that you could really dive into something from your own experience, maybe we should do Jars of Clay. I like it. But then I kind of sampled the album as a whole. And aside from Flood, it's kind of bad. Not that album. But if we're not doing the one with Flood, then what's the point? We can do Much Afraid plus Flood. (laughs) Uh, because the Jars of Clay self-titled came out in 95, right? I don't know, but it sounded older than it was. Yeah. And it didn't age well, except Flood. Flood still is... Flood's a good song. Which just shows the power of how a good song's a good song. Yep. It sadly reminded me of Drama Rama, <laughs> where anything, anything is an incredible song. Yeah. But the rest of the album is just kind of like... What the heck is this? So, I don't know if you have any ideas. I don't know. Let's come back to that because I'm exhausted and need to get to bed. So, tune in in two weeks. Until then, Once Every Two Weeks is a production brought to you by the Geek Lounge and Burrow Baracho Records. Be sure to check Burrow Baracho Records out on Spotify for some amazing playlists. 